So uh, what we do here on Sundays is we go through a passage of Scripture, and right now we're in a series of messages through Paul's first letter uh, to Timothy. Um, And it's a theme about leadership, about leadership. And so we've just been walking through each chapter of 1 Timothy, and uh, this morning uh, we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 5. But I want to tell you, before we turn there, uh, uh, one of my favorite leadership Uh, stories outside the Bible is a story that's called the sword of Damocles the sword of Damocles I don't know if you've heard that story or not but here it is once upon a time uh, there was a kingdom whose king was Dionysius and he had a good friend in his kingdom named Damocles and they had a very open friendship and they would converse and Damocles would uh, say things like this oh If I were king, I I would just love to be king. I would have all these servants to take care of me. Oh, you must have just a wonderful life to be king, to have people bring you food and and drink whenever you want and have your servants at your beck and call. Oh, if I could just be king for one day, I think my life would be complete. And after a while, King Dionysius, he grew weary of his words and One day he said, well, Damocles, would you? Would I? Would you? Would you like to be king for a day? Oh, you mean, oh, by all means, yes. Do you want to? Well, well, okay, you, okay, your highness, great, come tomorrow, uh, and we'll just start right at breakfast time, all right? Okay, oh, he was like a kid in a candy store, and he barely slept that night, and he got up the next morning, and they came, and oh, they put him in the king's robe and then they put the king's shoes on him and then they gave him the king's breakfast and there he was able to sit uh, on this beautiful beautiful uh, king's uh, chair the throne of the king and and he was enjoying breakfast and he was enjoying all these servants oh my king for a day would you look at me and then one of the servants said would you like to drink from the king's cup and Damocles says, well, I don't see why not. So he took the cup and he lifted it up to his lips and he looked up and he almost spewed the beverage out of his mouth and dropped the cup. That, what's that, what's that doing up there? Above his head was a sword pointed directly between his eyes. I mean, you could see the... The, the, the light glitter against the blade. And the sword was suspended by an ever so almost invisibly thin horsehair. That sword! That sword! And Damocles was paralyzed. And he would have jumped out of the chair, but he was afraid that he was going to do something in the thread would snap and 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 well the king was observing all of this and um said um uh, damocles you look pale are you not well well that's there's a sword can't you see the sword i see it all the time hangs over my head every day follows me wherever i go an enemy might invade my kingdom. Someone in my court 
might betray me and assassinate me. There could be a, a, a hurricane or an earthquake that could desolate the kingdom. Oh, I see it all right. It's there all the time. But here's the deal, Damocles. If you want to take the responsibility of leadership, you've got to live with life underneath the sword. To which Damocles said, Your Majesty, would you please return to your seat? <laughs> and would you please let me return to my house? And they traded places again. And Damocles went back home, and he never, ever, ever, for the rest of his life, ever asked to trade places with the king. The sword of Damocles. It's an ancient story. Um, I, I wish that I had read that story when I was growing up. Actually, my parents wished that I had read that story when I was growing up. Because I, I had all of these theories while I was growing up about how I thought they should parent me. And I disapproved as an all-knowing 11-year-old about how they should parent me. And and I didn't read that. And I didn't even read it in my 20s. And uh, I would very easily find myself critical of my boss. And if only my boss would do this. And if only my boss would do that. And because my boss can't do this or that, then we're just not, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I stopped complaining like Damocles the day I became your senior minister. Because I discovered that there's one thing to think about what you would do as the leader. And that's a whole different picture than actually becoming the leader and leading. Don't you agree? Yeah. Because leadership is complicated. It really is. And one of the complications about leadership is this balance between dreaming and doing. Dreaming and doing. There's the dreaming side of leadership, which is absolutely necessary. By dreaming, I mean there are seasons where you've got to, uh, you know, kind of uh, climb up uh, on a, a, a perched uh, and try to look at the horizon and see what's coming and be forward thinking and, and asking the question, what if and could we and is this God's will and, and we're looking ahead uh, dreaming about what the future might be. There, that's important to do. And, and, and there's the doing side, right? Uh, the doing side asks questions like, well, okay, uh, we're dreaming about maybe a facility or the future or helping the church family or whatever. But, I mean, like, where are we going to put the furnace? And where are we going to put the toilets? And how are we going to pay for this? And how, how long this is going to take? Those are just details, doing details. And often, you know, we kind of tend to uh, lean either way. 
Some of us here are dreamers, and we love to dream and, and visioneer and think about the future. And, 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 and when, when someone asks us a question about a detail, we just kind of go, eh, details. Now, I don't, we'll just cross that bridge when we get to it. And, and, then, and then, then the, the doer in us says, yeah, but I mean, there's no bridge to cross. And we're going to go into the river. I mean, you know, we need to think about, and you'll get your head out of the clouds, and let's get on the real world here, you know. Dreamers and doers, dreamers and doers, and, and we act, absolutely need both. Now, in our study on 1 Timothy, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but 1 Timothy, Paul's first letter to Timothy, a letter that the apostle wrote to his son in the faith, Timothy was to be sent to Ephesus, where there was a flourishing Christian community, but there were problems. And Paul sent Timothy to fix these problems. Paul kind of had this knack of both, dreaming and doing. So take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Paul's first letter uh, to Timothy. And it's on page 991 of your church Bibles. If you don't have a copy of God's Word to call your own, please uh, take a copy that's in the pouch in front of you and receive it as a gift from our church family. But 1 Timothy has both passages that deal with dreaming and doing. For instance, in uh, 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 15, Paul soars with this scenic statement. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full ex of acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Oh my, that's a sweeping statement. And, and then over in 1 Timothy chapter 3, another visionary statement. Paul soars when he says in 3.16, Great indeed, we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. And even in chapter 4, another visionary statement, for to this end, 4.10, for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God. My goodness, Paul takes us to, to scenic heights as he's dreaming and, and, and casting a vision of God's people. Then we get to chapter 5. Chapter 5 is the doing side of leadership. The detail side of leadership. And I want to read selections from 1 Timothy chapter 5. Beginning in verse 1, I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. And then I'm going to read verses 17 to 21. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow left all alone has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. 
But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And then verse 17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules. And when you see rules, read details. Without prejudging, do nothing from partiality. This is God's word. So this is a doing section. Did you feel that? There are details here. Timothy, we've got some widows to deal with and some some of the elder pastors aren't getting paid and oh, there are some relationships to manage and oh, by the way, Timothy, you need to take care of yourself too. There's details, details, details. But details matter, they do. I'm thinking of what Colin Powell once said. Colin Powell, who was once uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, and was a former Secretary of State. Here are some quotes he has about details like these. If you're not master of the details, you can't be master of the big picture. Then he said this. Detail management is not micromanagement. See, there's a difference between the two. And then he said this. Details dictate direction. Details dictate direction. And details matter. And I think that's sometimes why it's often overlooked. And, and uh, one of my favorite authors, Paul David Tripp, talks about this. He says that the details of life, the little moments of life, are profoundly important precisely because they are little. And it's in those little moments that we live in and that form us. This is where I think big drama Christianity gets us in trouble. It can cause us to devalue the significance of little moments and details and the the small change grace that meets us there. And because we devalue the little moments in which we live, we tend to not notice the sin that gets exposed there. And we fail to seek the grace that is offered to us. And then he says this. This is so true. It resonated with my spirit. You see, the character of a life is not set in two or three dramatic moments. But in 10,000 little moments. The details. And the character that's formed in those little moments. Those little details. That character is shaped. It shapes how we respond to the big moments. And uh, Sarah and I recently saw the movie Sully. And that's a perfect example of that. Uh, Sully, uh, Chelsea Sullenberger, the the pilot of Flight 1549, Miracle on the Hudson. This is what he said. One way of looking at this might be that for 42 years, I've been making small, regular deposits in this bank of experience, education, and training 
And on January 15th, 2009, the balance was sufficient so that I could make a very large withdrawal. <laughs> and then his Twitter says, 40 years of experience tested in 208 seconds. Mm. Details dictate direction. Well, 1 Timothy chapter 5 is a task list of details that Paul wants Timothy to complete for the well-being of the church in Ephesus. Now, the thing about these details is, these de details have to do with relationships in the church family. Because the church is not primarily technology-based. It's relationship-based. Relationships matter. And details in those relationships matter when we're talking about the family of God. And so I want us to think about what's going on here in 1 Timothy chapter 5 by considering that uh, Paul talks to Timothy about three groups of relationships, three groups of people. Uh, in verses 1 and 2, there's just general group, all right? All around. And then in verses 3 through 16, there's a very specific group, the widows, the widows. And then in verses 17 uh, uh, to 25, then there are the, the shepherd pastors of the church at Ephesus. And remember, when we're talking about the church at Ephesus, we're not talking about a church that's located on a property of land, 10 acres in the southwest part of Ephesus. We're talking about a Christian community consisting of a network of house churches. And maybe some of those groups are, uh, you know, 10 to 20. Some of them maybe 50 to 100. But they're, they're all over this huge urban, you know, 200,000 population of first century Ephesus. And there are relationships that Paul wants Timothy to take care of regarding the details. So let's Look at the general relationships, the widows, and then the shepherd pastors. First, the general relationships in verses 1 and 2. Detail number 1. Timothy, show honor in all of your relationships. All to honor. Honor. What does that mean? It means to appraise. It means to evaluate. It means to show how much you value and appreciate and respect and honor your brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's why in verses 1 and 2, Paul identifies four relationships for Timothy. Timothy, here's how I want you to relate to these generations in the church family. Older men, younger men, older women, younger women. Timothy, treat older men like fathers. Verse 1, do not rebuke an older man. But encourage him as you would a father. Now that word rebuke literally means don't strike or don't beat upon verbally. So some of your translations uh, actually put it this way. Do not give the older men a severe scolding. Or, or uh, never use harsh words when you correct an older man. But talk to him as if he were your father. So, so now Paul doesn't mean to never correct an older man. Because sometimes those of us who are older men, we get cranky and we lose our filter. And, you know, we just, 
well, this is just what I think, and I'm not going to change, and that's just the way. And we just need to come alongside these older, cranky, Christian father-type figures and respectfully correct them. And, you know, Dad, uh, did you know your lips were moving? I mean, did you know that? And, did, did you, and uh, you know... Uh, Dad, please, please, Dad, stop making sounds with vowels and syllables. Just, you know, let's just pray, Dad. Come on. You know, an older man may be totally out of bounds, but he's an older man. So treat him respectfully as you would your father. And then Paul says, uh, Timothy, treat younger men like brothers and older women like mothers. We'll kind of get to that in a little bit. And then Paul says uh, to treat younger women as sisters with all purity. Now, Timothy's in his 30s, and he wasn't married as far as we know. So here you have this gifted young man in a leadership role who displays character and warmth, and he's handsome, and Paul's words are concise. Son, you keep a clear head about you. You set boundaries. Those younger women in the Ephesian church, they're your sisters. They're your nieces in the faith. You listen attentively and you treat them respectfully and you pray for them and you be the safe person in their life. You be a safe person to them. They're your family. And I think there's a principle for us just in these two verses here and it's this. Leadership is always on behalf of. On behalf of. It's a great little phrase, on behalf of. So is your leadership on behalf of others or is it on behalf of you and your agenda and your ego? You know, how was was such and such leadership decision on behalf of the lead? You know, how was a strategy genuinely on behalf of an organization or a school or a clinic and their communities? How is the curriculum on behalf of the children and their learning and their futures? On behalf of. What's your leadership on behalf of? On behalf of. It's a short, wise phrase that will help you be a leader and not just a personality. So speaking on behalf of, it would be good to move now to this larger section of Scripture in verses 3 through 16. Paul moves from general instructions, all right, to now specific instructions to these widows. Now, this is one of those passages of Scripture where we really need to kind of get a grasp at what's going on in that culture at that place and at that time uh, if, if we're going to be helped by these verses. And, and you know how sometimes when you get into a conversation with someone, uh, you, you kind of are like a, at least in my conversations, we'll put it that way, kind of like a pinball. So I go to topic A and then go to topic B and then go to topic C and then I go back to topic A and then, oh, I start topic E and then this kind of, this is kind of, you know, like a pinball machine, sort of like a stream of consciousness, all right? That's what's going on here in 1 Timothy chapter 5, all right? Paul has this stream of consciousness conversation with Timothy concerning showing honor to widows. Now, In verses 3 through 16, it's helpful to know 
that there are four types of widows that Paul discusses in these verses. Four types of widows. There, there are older widows who are truly widows, Paul says. They don't have any safety net whatsoever. They don't have any Social Security, they have no dowry, they have no pension, they have no children, they have no grandchildren. They just have the church family. And if the church family doesn't come through, they're going to be in trouble. Older widows, that's, that's one type. There's another type. Older widows who do have family, who do have children and grandchildren to support them. And then there were younger widows, younger widows um, who wanted to get married and remarried. And, but there were false teachers forbidding this. That's chapter 4, verse 3. False teachers who forbid marriage and require abstinence. False teachers to widows who wanted to be remarried. And then the fourth group are young widows who Paul says are self-indulgent. Self-indulgent. So it's helpful to... For us to understand that in verses 3 through 16, Paul's talking about four types of widows. Now, the first type of widow, the widow who is truly a widow, needs help. I mean, she doesn't have any sort of safety net. And so the church is to come alongside and, and take care of this, this soul. And then there are uh, older widows who have family who can support her, them. That's verse 4. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. Right? And, and, and Paul really presses this. Look at verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Glance down at verse 16. Paul kind of says it again. Again, this is sort of stream of consciousness that's going on. Paul reiterates it. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Truly widows. So, so you know, that means, I'll just, just get practical here for a minute. If you have a mom or a dad and they're, you know, they don't have any type of safety net whatsoever, no type of pension or or, or they're just not making it, you know? And if you don't help them, they're, they're going to be in trouble. Then a principle from these, this chapter is this. If you're tithing to the church while your parent is destitute, you need to stop tithing to the church and go help your parent. I bet you never heard a preacher say that before. <laughs> but, I mean, it's just common sense, isn't it? You, you, you need... Because... Because if you don't, you've denied the faith. And you're worse than an unbeliever. So you make sure that your parents and your, your grandparents, if they, don't have, if they don't have any type of assistance or pension or means, they, it's your responsibility. And Paul says you, you're paying them back. Verse 4. This is pleasing in the sight of God. And then after the need is met... Well, then you can take your tithe and rechannel it back to, to your church family, you see? So, you, you, 
you really need to take care of you know, your parents and your grandparents as adult believers. So those, those are the two older widows that Paul's talking about. And then there are younger widows who I mentioned. They want to be remarried. That's what verse 14 is about. And Paul says, well, go ahead. I would, I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their household, and give the adversary no occasion for no occasion for slander. Now, if you just yank that out of context and you read that as a you know, 21st century American you know, in a democratic republic, that's going to sound awfully offensive. I get that. But you can't yank it out of that context. Within that context, you have to understand there were younger widows who, who wanted to remarry, but these false teachers were you know, kind of butting in and they were saying, no, no. Chapter 4, verse 3, we forbid marriage and require abstinence. And Paul says, get the false teachers out of here, all right? But then there were younger widows who had been influenced by this cultural revolution that was going on. And Bruce Winter talks about it in his books, uh, uh, Roman Widows, Roman Wives, and... uh, 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 seeking the welfare of the city. And it was a cultural revolution that you know, would have made those in the 1960s blush. That's how revolutionary it was in terms of uh, 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 um, sexual promiscuity. Well, some of these younger widows had bought into that and, and uh, they were straying, Paul says, verses 13 through 15. And some of them were even marrying unbelievers. And what you need to understand is, in first century Rome, when a woman married, uh, she then adopted the husband's faith and religion. And some of these younger widows were marrying pagans. And that's why verse 12 says, they've abandoned their former faith. So you've got Four types of widows, older widows who really need help, and then older widows whose family can support them, and then younger widows who want to marry, uh, 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 but uh, false teachers are forbidding them, and then you've got uh, younger widows who are straying, Paul says. Now, why do I mention all this? Because the church was supporting all four types of widows. That's why. That's why the apostle Paul puts this on Timothy's radar. And obviously, the church's finances are being strained. And they, you know, Paul says three of the groups do not qualify for benevolence on behalf of the church, just one of the groups. So, Timothy, get in there and fix this. Fix it. Now, here's what I want to tell you Timothy's going to go in and he's going to fix this, which means that. Uh, you know, three-fourths of the categories are no longer going to be getting money from the church. How do you think that's going to go over? Huh? Yeah. He's going to get some pushback because we're talking money here, you know, and especially from the family members who should be helping, but they're not. And he's going to get some pushback. And that's why Paul says in verse 21, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging. Do nothing from partiality. 
Paul says, Timothy, don't budge on this. Don't budge on this. You're going to have to take the flack, all right? But fix it anyway. And here is the leadership principle that I want to share with you. And, and those of you, I mean, if you're a parent, if you supervise anybody, you, this is, you know this is going to be truth. And here it is. It's right up here on the screen. Here it is. You, read this with me. You will never lead well if you are unwilling to endure an occasional, if not constant, level of low-grade irritation directed at you by those you lead. Amen? That's true. It's true. You will never lead well. You will not lead well if you are unwilling to endure an occasional, if not constant, level of low-grade irritation directed at you by those you lead. Every parent of a five-year-old knows that because that five-year-old disapproves of your parenting style because that five-year-old is all-knowing and knows better than you how to parent him or her. Yeah, right. Those of you who are teachers, you know this right now. If you're teaching in a class, you know you're thinking to that person right now, that family is not happy with me. They just have this low-grade level of annoyance at you, at you. And it's not necessarily justified. It's just it's the way it is. Principles feel that, right? Right now, if you're a principal, you know there's a teacher who's just not happy with you. Why? Because you put a lock on the paper closet. That's why. See? Yeah. Of course, that principle never shows up around this place with pastors. <laughs> well, yeah, sometimes it does. And, you know, if, if, to, if, if we're going to give those we lead the benefit of a doubt, you know, if they knew what we knew, then they would understand why you lead the way you do. Um, the person who leads you has about seven other things going on their radar besides you that they're needing to manage. Because, and that's their sword of Damocles. And so, give your leader, give your pastor, give a principal, give a teacher, give mom and dad, the benefit of a doubt. Um, I, I love this quote. So when Henry Kissinger, just before he joined the, the Nixon administration in 1968, uh, he was a former national security advisor and then became Secretary of State. <laughs> when he was about to receive highly classified security clearances, this is what he was told. He said, now Henry... First, you're going to be exhilarated by some of this new information and by having it all. So much. Incredible. Suddenly available to you. But second, almost as fast, you're going to feel like a fool for having studied, written, and talked about these subjects and criticized and analyzed decisions made by presidents for years without having known of the existence of all of this information, which the presidents and others had and you didn't, and which must have influenced their, their decisions in ways you couldn't have guessed. 
In particular, you're going to feel foolish for having literally rubbed shoulders for over a decade with some officials and consultants who did have access to all this information you didn't know about and didn't know they had, and you're going to be stunned that they kept that secret from you so well. So parents, you know, your 10-year-old or your 17-year-old is not qualified to judge your performance as a parent. And that's true in every other leadership scenario. So, no, the church's finances can't afford all these widows, just those who are truly in need. Show honor to those who are truly in need. And here's the deal, and this is where we get to detail number three. Paul wants Timothy to make sure that, you know, that there are elders along with deacons who are going to take care of those widows. Oh, and then, you know, some of those pastors, they're going to be preparing messages for worship, and they're going to, they're going to meet with the church members for prayer, and they're going to give spiritual direction uh, for those who are hurting, and they're going to resolve conflict uh, uh, so that the church will stay unified. And so they show honor to those shepherds. Verse 18, the laborer deserves his wages. And then, you know, when someone's low-grade irritation at an elder gets out of hand, and then they start vocally criticizing that elder, look at verse 19. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. I think that's a good principle. You know, if, if, if one person criticizes a church leader, we're not going to pay attention to that. We're not. We're not going to entertain that. If three... Okay, now you have our attention. We'll investigate. See? Because that's what we do to everybody else. All right? At the same time, Timothy needs to make sure that if there is any toxicity among the leadership or among the church family, and if that toxicity is unrepentant, well, that needs to be dealt with. And that's what verse 20 is about. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. Now, Francis Schaeffer once said, If a sinner is repentant, if a sinner is repentant, then protect him from the church. Because sometimes the church can shoot their wounded, right? If a sinner is repentant, protect that sinner from the church. But if a sinner is unrepentant, then you need to protect the church from the sinner. Oh, and by the way, again, stream of consciousness, you know, the way to keep from having toxic church leaders is to not be hasty in putting them in office. Verse 22, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. So, details, oh, details, but details determine direction. I mean, it's a sword of Damocles, right? There's stress. No wonder the Apostle Paul says to Timothy in verse 23, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments, all right? Details matter, especially in relationships. And the one word that ties all of these relationships together, generally and specifically widows and elder shepherds, the one word is the word honor. You see that? Honor. That's chapter 5, verse 3. Honor. Honor. Chapter 5, verse 17. 
Honor. Chapter 6, verse 1. Honor. Honor one another in these details. To show honor in your relationships in Christ's church is to show honor to Christ. Whatever you do, you show how much you value and appreciate and respect and honor your brothers and sisters in Christ, no matter who they are. And so I close with this challenge from Romans chapter 12, verse 10. Paul says, brothers and sisters, outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another. I wonder if that is one of the most under-obeyed commands in Scripture. I, I, I do. I wonder if we've lowered our standard to just, well, do no harm to one another, which is passive, and if we're not destroying each other, well, then we must be doing okay. No. To passionately pursue Christ should prompt people to say about our, our church, look how they honor one another. Because every person in Christ is worthy of honor because of Christ. And if we're having a hard time seeing that, then maybe we need to look more closely and more kindly. Psalm 16, 3. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Every saint has some excellence. And it isn't hard to see. We just need to repent of an ungenerous spirit toward truly worthy people. So do your social media posts reflect honor? Or are you just interested in exercising your First Amendment rights? Oh yeah, you're being a good American, but you may not be helping God's kingdom. Our citizenship is in heaven. Is your leadership on behalf of others or just yourself? I mean, every day we're drenched with this fault-finding spirit of worldliness. But we, who are destined for glory, are now commanded by God to create alternative cultures of honor. Churches. Where people are lifted up and where their accomplishments are celebrated and where their strengths are admired and where their weaknesses are forgiven. And this new relational environment has high standards in keeping with the glory of the gospel itself. And faithfulness to the gospel requires more of us than mere adherence to a doctrinal statement of faith. It requires a whole new way to treat one another. A way marked by glory and honor. Who couldn't flourish in such a culture? So church family, I appeal to you in the name of Christ. Brothers and sisters, outdo one another in showing honor. Amen.